So with Rex, I welcome you today. Anybody joining us online, we're so glad you could join us. I'm Pastor Joel. It's my privilege, honor to be able to serve you this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or in your bulletins on your devices to 1 John. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, the first 10 verses. As you turn there to help us lean into our text, I want to share a scene that took place in the Middle East a long time ago. There was this well-known rabbi who was instructing his class, and his lesson was suddenly interrupted by a bunch of opposing teachers. They harshly escorted this young woman up to the front and stood her before the class. You look at her, you would see that she's trembling with fear. She's very sorrowful. And one of the opposing teachers announced, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law demands her death. What say you, rabbi? Every eye turned from the speaker to the woman, and lastly to the rabbi. At this point, the rabbi bent over and began to write on the ground, which kind of made them upset. What say you, teacher? What say you, rabbi? The law demands her death. Went on for a little bit, and then the rabbi finally stopped, stood up, and he said this. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone at her. And then he leaned back over and started writing on the ground again. Just like that, it got really, really quiet. I can imagine people started looking at one another and stopped looking at one another. And one by one, they began to walk out of the room until only the rabbi and the woman were left which point he looked at her with kind eyes and he said, where are they? Is there no one here to condemn you? And she answered, no one. And then he said these incredible words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Some of you know this scene. It's found at the beginning of John chapter eight. And you also know the rabbi was Jesus. And what we see in Jesus' words and in his posture captures actually what John has been teaching us. John says, God is love. Did you catch the love in that scene? Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But John has also said, God is light, which means God's standard is perfect holiness. Jesus did not tell that woman, no big deal. Go on. He said, go and sin no more. That is what John is just about to tell us in chapter 3. John wrote this text here, so that you and I would hear Jesus say to you and me what he said to this woman long ago. Jesus is inviting you today, friends, to let go of all the lies, to believe in his love, and then to live in his light and find life. Jesus is telling you today, walk out of here knowing this, there is no condemnation, go and sin no more. And your response to Jesus today will reveal who you are and who you belong to. Let's pray before we read the word. Father, we come to your word and we bow before it, knowing that it's the reason we came into being. And we ask and pray that you will touch our hearts with a sense of your affection for us. 
we renew our minds, that we may actually see the truth. We ask and pray that you will change each and every soul and even those who are watching online, that we may in fact make clear who it is that we belong to and who we are in you and in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You might have noticed today's passage is actually bookended with verses about what it means to be God's children. Verse 1, verse 10. But verse 10 adds there's a lot of folks who are not God's children. John is saying that you and I know and meet folks each and every day who are children of the devil. And he adds, it's really easy to tell the difference. It's easy to see who's your daddy, who's your daddy. That's a popular phrase in our culture, as there are many absent fathers and adulterous mothers. That's our culture. Jamie and I actually were talking with fellow foster parents last week who were asking that very question as they looked at these children they had. That's why DNA tests are a big deal in our day, now that we got this technology. We have TV shows, right, that hype the big reveal, who's your daddy? But John says there's another father question, a more ultimate one. Who's your spiritual father? And it's far easier to determine who your spiritual father is than DNA tests. John says, look at how people live. You can tell who are the children of the devil. Verse 10. That's a corrective to what many folks say today. You ever hear folks say, oh, we're all children of God. We're all children of God. Anybody heard that? Yeah. And that's because most people say, well, the reason is we're, God's our creator. He's all our creator. But there's a difference between being created by God and being a child of God. It's about belonging to God uniquely. I mean, Steve Jobs is the creator of the iPhone. I got one on my back right now. But that doesn't mean Steve Jobs could come in here and say, Pastor Joel, Give me your phone. My phone doesn't belong to him. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 
verses 2 and 3, that all mankind, from the moment you're born, by nature, were children of sin, children of the devil. We are children of wrath. Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. We are not born by nature into God's family. We have to be born again as children of God, as Jesus told Nicodemus. We talked about that last week. So how do you know God is your father? What does it mean to be in the family of God? You realize these are the most important questions you and I could ever ask. We have a lot of questions that we think about all the time, but these two questions are the most important. How do we know God is our father? And what does it mean to be in his family? And John wrote this to provide not yet Christians the answer and already Christians with assurance. He says it is possible to know God and to know that you know God. He gave us actually three chests in chapter two. I'm not going to review those. You can go to look on sermon audio. Chapter three, actually, I believe it starts with another test, an implied test. And I'll read the NIV translation here. I'm not fond of the ESV. It's the emotionless standard version in this particular translation. The NIV says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, exclamation point. And that is what we are, exclamation point. We saw John last week begin this chapter. He's over the moon about God's love. I wish they'd only add the word behold in the NIV. It's behold. Behold what you're becoming. That's the point of this section. So it's the implicit test, Joel. The test is, are you amazed that you're a Christian? <laughs> are you amazed that you're a Christian? Are you amazed that the Father's love, the Heavenly Father's, that he would set his love on you? John is hopping with happiness as he writes this verse. Friends, are you delighting in your adoption every day? No longer are we sons of sin and Satan because of the Father's great love and calling us his own. And because of this, John says, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Many of us fail at that because we don't see our faith as in the first place about intimate relationship with Father God. I want to address something else that may inhibit our taking into the Father's love. Not just the sin issue, but the shame issue. We live in a culture where many of us don't know our earthly fathers. Or if we do, we didn't experience their affection. One woman tells the sad memory of being a little girl, and one day she saw her older sister hanging up her father's white shirts on a clothesline, and she was filled with this urge to help. And she writes this, I'm not sure I can explain my motive. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way and I wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline, it was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was and I rather joyfully clothes pinned his wet shirt onto the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. She goes on to talk about how this childhood memory impacted how she understood her Heavenly Father. Can any of you relate? When you look, try to be pleasing in your Christian life right now and you mess up real bad, do you ever imagine the Father's looking down, arms crossed, and saying, Irvin, really, again? 
I was actually asked, I've been asked a couple of times recently, is it okay to pray to Jesus instead of going to the Father because Jesus just feels so much more accessible? There are times you'd rather just run to Jesus and all your mess. Here's my answer to that question. Yes. Yes. You can go to him in prayer. Please run to Jesus and prepare at some point to be wonderfully surprised like Philip once was when Philip asked Jesus to reveal the Father to him. John 14, 9 and 10. Do you know what Jesus said to Philip? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, Jesus can't be referring to his physical frame because the Father never became man. Of course, Jesus and the Father are distinct because Jesus actually talks to his Father. And they're also one God, though, right? That's Jesus' whole point. They are one God. Jesus is saying that when he, the Son of God, put on two human legs, the heart of the Father was put on display before the whole watching world with all its tenderness, all the love, all the mercy you see in Jesus. That's the Father's heart. When you see Jesus' love for the sinful woman, you are seeing the Father's heart for her. So we can't let the failings of our earthly fathers inform us. Neither can we allow our own fallen tendencies to allow us to beat up on ourselves and to inform how we think about our Heavenly Father. Friends, open yourself to the good news that in Jesus' love for you, if you get that, you see the Heavenly Father's love for you. The woman I mentioned earlier was at a conference. about it, it was about the privilege of being God's child. That's where she wrote this. When she came to realize how she had projected low views of her, earth, of her heavenly father because of her, heavenly, her earthly father, the bad memories of her earthly father caused her to project low views of God, she went on to write this. As I remembered these scenes from the past, I saw that through the years I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I hadn't been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, now he loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. So the next morning, I told our counselor, Jeff, that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and said, I guess that if the father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with a ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and hug me. You still don't fully understand, Jeff said. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. She said, I was overwhelmed with that realization. She was overwhelmed because the Father's love exceeds any earthly love that we can imagine. That's John's point. When John says what kind of love, he's literally saying, from where on the earth does this love come from? And he's not done. He goes on to say, and it only gets better. The second coming of Jesus, the Father is going to complete the work and make us totally like him. When the trumpet sounds, each and every one of us we're going to be totally transformed. When God adopts us, he has a plan to give us full and final family resemblance. That is God's goal. And then you come to verse 3. We talked about that more last week. We come to verse 3, and then we get brought back to earth and to the present. John says, because that is your identity and that is your future, now here's what you've got to do. Everyone who thus purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who hopes in and purifies himself as he is pure. What John is saying is that our hope leads to our holiness. 
And as we look forward to that day, then when our Lord Jesus returns, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, we're supposed to be busy cleaning our act up, tossing our bad habits, washing, scrubbing our lives. It would be like that bride in the days leading up to the wedding. We know it's coming. You know, she gets her hair done one day. She gets her nails done. Every day, she's more and more going over every detail. When that moment comes, when she's going to face her bridegroom, she wants to be as absolutely perfect as she can possibly be. That's John's point. Our hope leads to our holiness. Our hope in Jesus' second coming ought to lead to our personal holiness each and every day. But now John makes a switch. In verses 4 to 10, John says his first coming ought to have the same effect. He's been focusing on the second coming. Now it's the first coming. Everyone who makes a practice of sin, sinning, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John begins by describing sin as lawlessness. The Greek word here is anomia. It means actually unlawness. What John is getting at is that every time we sin, we are disdaining the law, which means we don't like the lawgiver. We don't like submitting to him. You see, every time you sin, you are exalting yourself over God and his authority. That's what you're doing. And that's our problem. Every one of us from birth makes a practice of sinning. Breaking rules is innate to us. Little children, they're innocent in one sense, in another sense, not at all. Breaking rules is innate to all of us. If you disagree, go talk to the parents of a three-year-old, okay? All of us by nature, we practice sin, and we rebel against the laws of our holy creator. And John says, this is why Jesus, the Son of God, appeared on earth to take away sin. Now, if you're a Christian, okay, Pastor Joel, this is where I start to tune you out because I've heard that a million times. Don't tune me out. Pay attention. We need to think about this. Do you realize that you talk to unbelievers out there, there's no more offensive thing you could ever say to them than to say that the Son of God came and died for your sins. There's nothing more offensive that you could say to them. Every other religion says you get to heaven, nirvana, wherever it is, based on your own efforts. That's actually why Jesus' opponents were upset. They were looking at their righteousness and seeing how we're better than them. And then Jesus said, uh, uh, let the sinless one cast the first stone. <laughs> and soon there was nobody left but Jesus. Christianity, when you share Christianity with someone, you are saying that each and every one of us is so sinful, so shameful, so bad off, so awful, that Holy God's only recourse to save you was to send his own Holy Son to planet Earth to die a most shameful death, most shameful, in order to save you out of all your mess. That's offensive. Then think about this. Do you realize the cost to Jesus when he said through all the wrecks earlier, I do not condemn you. Do you realize the cost of Jesus as he said that to the woman? Jesus was agreeing at that point to take our condemnation, to pay off our debt. He endured in his own body and soul the agony of all of our wickedness, all of our sinfulness, all the things we do that we know we shouldn't. 
Isaiah 53 says Jesus was pierced for our unlawness. What do we think of that? He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He received the Father's condemnation that you deserved at the cross. Notice John adds, in, in him, Jesus, there is no sin. And I tend to think of that being true then, right? On the cross, he became sin who knew no sin, that in him, that remains true right now. Jesus is still in heaven, and he has no sin in him. And John then, immediately after, talks about our abiding, our fellowship. How it is impossible for the Christian to keep on sinning. Bede, an old man, he says something interesting here. Insofar as you abide in Jesus, you do not sin. The question for you is, do you want to abide? Do you want to know Jesus? Know your Savior truly, intimately, personally? Any of us can abide more and more and get to know Jesus better and better by daily repenting of our sin, of all our wrong thoughts, words, actions. Another way to think about it, when you're tempted to disobey, to gossip, to cheat, to lie, to fornicate, you must ask yourself at that very moment, do I want to live in Christ? Do I want his presence near me? Because if I do, then I cannot do this because this is not compatible with life in him. Conversely, if you can continue on doing those things, if you keep on sinning, that's actually evidence you do not know him. That you haven't actually taken in what he did for you at Calvary's cross. It tells that you're not abiding. That you don't want to be in him. John says, don't be deceived because that's our normal. We're normally deceived. That's the whole thing about deception. You don't realize it's happening. There are preachers then, as there are today, who tell folks you can be a disciple without daily putting to death your sin, without daily obeying what God says. There are a lot of Christians that are going to be surprised, professing Christians on Judgment Day. And that's not Pastor Joel saying that. That's Jesus saying that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, I will declare to them, I never knew from you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Anomia. I find that to be a most terrifying verse when I talk with a lot of professing Christians. But it need not be for you if you see your need. The Father only calls sinners, the vilest, the poor, the weak ones, if you're here today, there's a reason you came here. It wasn't all you. He's calling you today. God calls the undeserving. So if you think you're undeserving, you qualify. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. The Father calls and he chooses them to be like himself. As a result, John is calling us to practice righteousness as the ones he's chosen. Mark was actually telling me, he didn't really necessarily want me to share this illustration, so I got permission. He was actually selected to play semi-pro baseball back in his 20s. And he said, we had to practice and practice and practice in order to make the right plays. And he said, yes, you would make errors, but messing up was not the point of practice. You were seeking to be better and better and better each and every day out of gratitude for the fact that I was chosen to be on this team. So that on game day, people would come out and watch you and they would see you play beautifully. One of the biggest problems in Christian witness in our day is we don't practice very much. 
we don't practice very much. I've met folks, many folks, who reject the gospel and they point out to Christians who perform poorly. I may be talking to someone right now. If I am, you have no reason, that's not an excuse, to not believe the gospel. Because the gospel is a glorious masterpiece. Sorry you haven't experienced it from Christians. As an intelligent person, I'd invite you to study the beautiful gospel here in your Bible before you make that decision. You wouldn't say Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata was trash just because the folks you'd seen played it had never practiced the piece. John calls you to look at Jesus, to look at him in the scriptures, to hear there's no condemnation and to sin no more. And now, as we this closing section, John now shifts the angle to show us what's happening behind the scenes, what we don't see on earth, verses 8 to 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now John is, if you actually look at it, he's essentially repeating what he just said. Compare the section starting verse 4 and verse 8. He tells about the practice of sinning, what it's about. He then talks about how Jesus appeared. And then he says, we can't keep on sinning for this reason. But he changes the settings in section 2. It's like he has a camera lens and he just switches over now to the spiritual lens. We don't practice sin because sin is of the invisible one, the devil. Jesus, he appeared. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. So we cannot keep on sinning if, in fact, there is spiritual life, a new birth that's happened in you. And he concludes by saying we can know who's our spiritual daddy by what we do on earth. See, John is taking away that veil so we can see the spiritual. His main purpose is to invite us to know God, but now he's inviting us to also know our enemy. Let me ask you, how much time do you spend thinking about the greater spiritual reality? You know, there's a spiritual reality that precedes and supersedes this earthly world, this material world. God created angels. That's what the Bible teaches. Supernatural beings, and some of them turned against God. The Bible describes a cosmic battle going on in the supernatural realm. Read Ephesians 6, 10 through 7, or 10 through 17. And what you'll find is our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Actually, mankind is the playing field. We are tools in the hands, or instruments in the hands of God are tools of Satan. The devil was the first to sin against God, and in pride, that's why he sought to exalt himself. Pride is at the heart of this. What did he do after that? He first shows up in Genesis 3. He lied to Eve. He tempted her to pride. Remember how he tricked her? He encouraged her to anomia, And he said, break the law of your creator. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The Father made us to be like him by trusting him and obeying his anomia, or his, his law. Do you actually see the irony here? The devil is encouraging them to be like their father by the opposite, anomia. Instead of law, 
unlaw. Every time we fall for the lie, every time we sin, we're actually acting like our father. Or if we're a Christian, we're not acting like our father. Every time we say, I don't care about what's right here, I'm calling the shots in my life, we're doing great danger. We're actually saying we don't know our enemy. <laughs> Most of our neighbors realize they're entirely clueless about this. Actually, Halloween's coming up, right? And folks, they either laugh at the imitations, you know, with the red pointy tails and the horns, or seems to be a growing phenomenon. There's a lot of people are actually really scared by the devil, scared of the dark. They're scared of the devil entirely the wrong way. <coughs> Puritan William Gurnall once wrote, if men hear a noise at night, they cry out, the devil, the devil, and they run for their lives. But they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day long. If you have a proud spirit or if you have resentment, you are under his power. Do you see what Gurnell's saying about how the devil actually, how he works to destroy us? It's not with a pitchfork in your back. It's with pridefulness in your heart. Pride, friends, is the sign that you're under his power. When you believe his lies that you don't need to obey, to submit yourself to what God says in his will, in his word, if you don't want to obey his will, when you refuse to forgive a person because you'll lose your leverage, your ability to stand over them and look down, the devil is at work. Or we do like Jesus' opponents, right? To look down on others. We like to look down on others, don't we? Your sins are so much worse than mine, I feel better about myself. John Flavel said, it's easier to cry against a thousand sins of others than to kill one of your own. The devil uses our pride to keep us under his power. And if your first thought right now is to deny that you know better, you know better than that, you better think about that. If that's your first thought, well, I know better than that. After the scene with the woman in John 8, Jesus will go on to continue to confront these opponents. And he'll say that anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and he'll go on to say, and a child of the devil. Jesus says that every single person we meet, that we're going to see this week, is living to please their father. You ever stop to think of that when you consider the behaviors of the folks around you? They're just living to please their father. Jesus and John both say it's evident when you look at it to see who's your daddy. If you practice righteousness and love, you're a child of the Heavenly Father doing His will. If you love sin more than you love obedience, you are a son of Satan and a slave of sin. And John adds that though only those who Jesus adds in that section in John 8 that only those who receive His word, those who abide in His word are free. Jesus says, actually, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Those who don't are not of God. I want to invite us to take Jesus seriously. I've been trying to do that, to make a place in our hearts for God's word. Don't let Pastor Joel know your Bible for you. Don't trust your soul to me. Let's recite again our verse of the month. I hope you're meditating on it, memorizing it. <clears throat> 
Romans 12, 2, you'll find it underneath our text. Let's all get this in our hearts. Let's say together, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, God's word, when received with faith, enables us, with the Spirit's help, to discern God's will. And then we simply have to submit ourselves and do it. That's actually how Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. It's why he came. Jesus' whole life was about submitting himself to the Father's will. That's why he came. Notice the contrast between Jesus and the devil, by the way. The devil exalted himself to be like God. Jesus lowered himself by taking on our flesh. In pride, the devil disobeyed God. In humility, Jesus obeyed his Father perfectly. The devil uses people to destroy them. Jesus is abused by people to save them. And who ends up on top in the end? And Jesus is saying to each and every one of you today, follow me as I follow the Father, and you'll find freedom. Freedom in the family. If you choose discipleship, follow Jesus on the path of humility, friend, it works out. Everybody in the world is out there trying to get as much as they can for themselves, to exalt themselves. And what do they get in the end? There's a different way, a better way, following Jesus, and you get more. Far more for eternity. Another thing, just think about every time you choose sin, you're actually fighting against Jesus because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Every time you sin, you're fighting Jesus. That is why as a, if you're a child of God, you cannot make a practice of sinning. You can't. Now John is not saying here that we must be sinless. That would contradict chapter 1. John is talking about not staying in habitual sin. Some of us are feeling a lot of weight right now. I've felt a lot of weight in this text. I've preached longer than I probably normally do. But here's the good news, especially if you don't feel like you're making any progress. Here's good news. If you not feel like you're practicing righteousness like you should, there's good news. If you're hearing Jesus say to you, sin no more, guess what? You will. You will sin no more. Why? The cure for sin is this. A seed. A seed. John says, God's seed abides in you, and so you cannot keep on sinning. Now, first, this is discouraging. I've read this at first. I'm like, come on, give me a bulldozer, a machine gun, or something powerful to deal with my sin. That's not how God operates, my friends. God always chooses and uses the small and the little things. And what God has done, if you've started to believe, he's given you an itty-bitty tiny little seed, and he's planted in your heart, and he calls you to be patient right now. And day after day... You're like, I don't see any change. Come on. But eventually, a little tiny sprout. I can testify to this. I have two foot fall tall pepper plants right now in my house. I brought them in. All from a little tiny seed I planted back in March. Let me ask you, what if I had planted a maple seed or an acorn? <laughs> you know there's an entire tree in one of those? You realize given time, the power in one of those can bust through cement? Me and my wife go walking on our sidewalks. We see it all the time. But friend, what you have is even better than that. You've been given God's seed. <laughs> when you're born again, you have the very nature of God starting inside you. And it's going to break through all those hard spots in your life if you let it. Here's the thing, and I close with this. Eternity is coming. 
Verse 10 tells us very clear there's only two types of people in the world. They're children of God, children of the devil. Inside God's children is his seed. God's very DNA has been implanted in you. And the more you spend time in the word, in prayer, in fellowship with the saints, coming to the table, the more you feed that seed, the more you're going to become like God. And it's going to take over your whole being one day, and you're going to be like Jesus Christ. It's coming. His power is there. The evil will be progressively pushed out until you're all glory for all of eternity. Let me just say the same is exactly true for the children of the devil. You're on a journey to eternity whether you recognize it or not. If you're not a believer, the things inside you, those crawly evil things in our hearts, the Bible reveals, they too will push out all that's good in you until there's no image of God remaining in eternity. C.S. Lewis, a former atheist turned Christian, <laughs> wrote, There are no mere mortals. We're all eternal creatures. He wrote this, It's a serious thing, a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a whore and a corruption such as you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. Lewis says that every single person you meet is on one of two paths, to becoming glorious or nightmarish. That's why you and I need to see every encounter with every person we meet as significant, serious, important. But says all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these two destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and circumspension proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. But it is to immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I want to practice more righteousness to encourage people towards others. I believe some of you do too. I hope all of us do. So let's show folks we meet the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We receive Jesus' comfort, and then we seek to obey his command. Friend, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Receive that message. So leave here and sin no more. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a weighty text in multiple ways. It's weighty because of the glory of the gospel that is so beyond us that you would send your only begotten beloved son to save sinners like us. But it's also weighty in terms of what we then do with it. And none of us right now have any ability in of ourselves to do anything to impact those whom you've made, those whom you love, those who are on one of two paths. We cannot impact them in of ourselves. So we ask and pray you'll give us your spirit a new measure. We pray that the seed that you've planted in our hearts, which we thank you for, will begin to, to grow and to sprout. Help us to be patient and waiting, to be trusting you, to be moving closer and closer to Jesus. We want to abide in you, Jesus. So Father, will you give us your spirit a new measure and give us both the comfort and the uncomfortability that we need with sin, the comfort of the gospel and the uncomfortability of sin, Lord. 
that we may in fact do mighty mattering things in our own day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.